Hello, everyone. Thank you all for zooming in today for our webinar titled Running Out of Water. We chose a deliberately provocative title, as you will appreciate while listening to today's talks. Water is, strictly speaking, not something that disappears after use. And so in this sense, it cannot really run out. But we will need to do things differently. This webinar is coming to you from the Gadigal land, land blessed by saltwater in the east, Paramatta River in the north, and Cooks River in the south. We acknowledge that water has always had a great spiritual significance for the traditional custodians, the Gadigal, who have cared for it for tens of thousands of years. From this land, you will hear about cutting-edge research on water from an absolutely brilliant lineup of speakers. Professor Diane Wiley, the head of School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering, will set the scene and introduce the state-of-the-art research in water treatment. Professor Ben Eglaton, a co-director of the New South Wales Smart Sensor Network, will explain how remote sensing of the underground can save us precious resources. Professor Sally Cripps, who leads the data resource analytics for resources and environments, will explain how better understanding of uncertainty can help us drought-proof Australia. I, Peter Matos from the School of Project Management in Faculty of Engineering will talk about how applications of network science can help us better understand complex socio-environmental systems. Most importantly, we have the great privilege of being joined today by the New South Wales Minister for Water, Property and Housing, the Honourable Melinda Jane Bailey. Um, thank you very much uh, for your kind introduction. Uh, it's wonderful to be in such a with such esteemed company, one doctor and three professors. Um, I'm just a member for Oxley on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And whilst we are on uh, Gadigal land, I wish I was on Gambanga land, which would mean I'd be at home and the Kalang River would be right out the front of me. Um, but water is certainly a topic that has been front and center uh, of, of the community's mind, whether it's in the city or in the country um, in recent times. And I've very much enjoyed being Water Minister for the past uh, 17 months. It's been a tumultuous time, uh, whilst we still are in, in severe drought in, the part, in great parts of Western New South Wales and our storages are at levels that um, are not high enough. We've still got many challenges for communities like Bathurst, uh, Tamworth and Orange uh, with some of the, the worst droughts that they've ever experienced. Uh, it is a great time to be talking about climate change uh, and the challenges it does bring. And in those challenges, also accepting that at times we get falls that, uh, that are out of the ordinary. Um, it was the most delightful news because we were in a very stressful situation in, uh, in Sydney with our catchment with Warragamba down to 40%. And in the space of a week, it went up to 82% the Sydney catchment. Um, so it, but we had experienced the hardest and fastest drop ever recorded um, in the catchment. So it has been focusing our government's mind uh, very much on into the future and the options uh, that we have to ensure that, uh, that we, we cater for growth um, and the challenges that climate um, is bringing and has brought. So as I said, we're, we're, we're managing our way through drought, um, but I've got to say some of our country communities are really leading the way. I think Sydney, uh, is using currently around 180 litres per person. Um, 
uh, a day uh, in the in the city of Orange. They've um, really uh, embraced change and conversations, and they're down to I think probably the lowest in Australia um, of a major regional centre or city at about 120 litres per day with their, their stormwater harvesting and, and showing themselves as a role model. Uh, recycling is very much at the heart of what happens, particularly in regional and rural communities, um, and we want it to be more so in Sydney, and it needs to be, uh, with uh, the growth expectations for the new Western um, Sydney. And quite rightly, we've got a plan to, to, to plant 7 million trees. Um, those trees are going to need to be watered. Um, and. Uh, and proper thinking about how our water systems and how recycling will work um, is very much uh, at, uh, at the heart of, of what we're doing. Um, it, you know, I was delighted to, only uh, two months ago to, to announce a new contract with the steelworks down in the Illawarra, increasing our, our recycled water use in Sydney up to 47 billion litres is recycled across 23 schemes. And, and Illawarra Steel is our biggest client of recycled water. And state, our, our water, our state water is driving towards doubling its recycling capability over the next 25 years. And local government and private sector recycling programs will also continue to rise as a capability is added to the system. As I said, regional New South Wales, some 12% of the total water supply is derived from recycled water. And I think there's a, there's a greater understanding and respect of water within our regional communities, whether it's from our farming practices uh, and, you know, the fact that a lot of people still, you know, get their water from their own personal tanks uh, has, uh, has given us an opportunity to take some of those learnings and, and, and have those conversations within the city. Uh, technology is, is very much going to be at the heart of it. I've just done an interview with ABC Country Hour talking about uh, we are going to have the, the first floodplain harvesting uh, licensing regime in Australia in the northern northwest part of New South Wales that has been uh, developed over six years of really hard work from people within my agency but at the heart of it is smart sensing and technology um, that will ensure um, the greatest of transparency and faith back into to our farmers and our irrigators where We've seen some instances in recent times where some of that, that faith has been lost and we need to restore that because, you know, I want to be able to eat Australian rice and wear Australian cotton and drink Australian wine and, uh, and having a, a very proper, uh, transparent uh, system of managing water within our regions is, is at the heart of that. Uh, so delighted with some of the reforms that we've been able to achieve in New South Wales and also returning enormous amounts of water back to, to the environment. And, and so that, you know, this terrible drought that we've been in, you know, the, the, the water that we've given back to the environment has ensured that Adelaide um, hasn't run out of water, that uh, we've had strong flows of all of our rivers, our regulated river systems. Um, we have been able to manage through this climate change period and a severe drought um, and supporting our communities. Uh, so, you know, we should be proud of what we've done and learn from that um, and, and keep keep up that challenge um, uh, and I'll give you an example too also Hunter Water it's his installed data loggers for large non-residential customers who make up 70% of non-residential consumption this is enabling businesses to reduce leakage and increase our outstanding um, of to increase understanding of water use um, Hunter Water has, has led that uh, 
under the former CEO, Jim Bentley, who is now uh, the Deputy Secretary for Water across New South Wales. And there's a focus on, on leakage in Sydney water. We've been able to reduce those leakage rates. And it's, a, it's, it's an all systems um, attempt. It's not just one solution to increasing supply. It's not just doubling desal. It's also looking at leaks um, and, and a more conservative water consumption um, by, the, by the greater population. It is important we work with the community to ensure the best possible use of scarce resource. The solution to ensuring the sustainability of our water supplies cannot be provided by government alone. It's a partnership with our local councils. We have 92 local water authorities across New South Wales. Uh, Victoria, uh, I envy, have 16, uh, but we've been working very well with our councils uh, to, to ensure that we might take uh, a more district-like approach and improve that capacity. Um, that has been one of the benefits of the drought and supporting our communities uh, ensure that, uh, that they have the infrastructure to get through the drought. Water conservation, recycling, desalination, stormwater harvesting and other mechanism, mechanisms for extending our water supply are in operation. And, uh, and that is also in addition to construction of, uh, of the three dams that we have announced as a government. Uh, and, you know, 650 gigalitres for Wyangla Dam, Dungowan Dam um, near Tamworth to improve the, the town's water supply as well as uh, farming activity. And also we're working on our final business case on a new dam on the Mole River on the Queensland border. Uh, it's, it's a big job, but as I said, uh, we know the challenges that climate change bring. We know that there will be years of dry and there'll be moments of, of huge East Coast lows that we saw in February where we were able to move within one week 40% at Warragamba Dam um, up to 82% to within a week's period. And I've got to say I'm very encouraged by the radar. Um, at the moment, over the next 10 days, we, we could be seeing some very good news in terms of some of our communities out west that, uh, that uh, are facing strong drought still. Um, we take our role as a custodian of water, of our precious water resources, very seriously. It's only by consulting and working with the community at all levels, from the commercial irrigators, our productive industries to our regional communities, our metropolitan population and research organisations. And I reiterate too that uh, our new Deputy Secretary, Jim Bentley, is very much focused um, on reaching out to the research section. I'm, I'm sad that I won't be able to be on, on this call because some of the, the speakers, um, I want to hear about the groundwater technologies, the sensing. I was in Nabiak, which is near Taree, uh, only last week. and. The Nabiak ball fields apparently has something like 4,000 gigalitres of water underneath them. It's, and it was a warning the chief scientist gave me in my first weeks as minister. Um, we need to better understand the ground, the, our groundwaters across New South Wales. Um, and um, I'd be happy, I'm happy to be working with, uh, with my agency to better understand that. Uh, there's a whole suite of solutions. There's a whole suite of work. And it's not just the government to do it is to do it with um, our communities, local government, researchers like yourselves. And I commend you for the work that you're doing. Uh, water is at the heart and soul of everything. Uh, and a better respect of it, a better appreciation, um, and a better use of it uh, will serve us all for generations to come. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minister Pavey, for that really great introduction. My name is Diane Wiley. I'm coming to you today from the lands under the traditional custodianship of the Gwigal, Bidjigal and Gadigal clans. 
as the minister just said, water is a very valuable resource. And I wanted to share with you about some great ideas we are working on in the School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Sydney to both produce new resources and, and treat our water resources better so that we can make better use of our water. Many of you have probably heard about the use of dialysis to help people with kidney disease um, remove waste products from their blood. Now, in order for that technique to work, um, it needs water. So usually what happens in hospitals, the, the town water is treated and put through a process of reverse osmosis and the permeate water from that process goes to the dialysis unit. In the meantime, the reject water from that uh, process which is actually quite clean, goes off to sewerage. So our team led by Dr. David Wang and Dr. Gustavo Fimbraiswise are working with the, some of the hospitals from the Western New South Wales local health districts on a clever way of making better use of that reject water. And here, one of the techniques they're looking at is a membrane process called nanofiltration, which is able to recycle a lot of that RO reject water and then use the other water that's left over for things like irrigation, toilet flushing, gardens. Now that team has estimated that up to 25% of the water that's currently needed for dialysis could be recycled in that way. And down the bottom on the right hand side, you can see a, a little membrane system that we've got in the laboratory on another technique called forward osmosis for also looking at how we could better recycle the water from the hospitals. We also have Professor PJ Cullen working on how to uh, decontaminate water that's um, contaminated by PFAS. PFAS, you might have heard about. It's a firefighting foam, which unfortunately has ended up in a number of our water resources. On the right-hand side in purple there, you can see a bubble column, which is used in conjunction with plasma to completely decompose the, um, the PFAS that's in the water. And on the left-hand side there, you can see the plasma discharging into the air bubbles. And when it does that, it creates a whole range of ions and radicals that can completely destroy the PFAS. Uh, the plasma can also be used for other types of wastes, including dyes, pesticides, antibiotics, microbes, and some other members of his team are also looking currently at, at how this technology might be used to destroy COVID. In a project that I'm working on that's led by Associate Professor Chiaro Nito from Chemistry and Professor Martin de Sturke from Physics, we are looking at a really clever way to try to condense water from the air. And on the right-hand side there, you can see the very smart surface that we have working in the laboratory to condense water. Now, as many of you realise, condensing water needs some sort of cold source to do that condensation. And on the left-hand side there, you can see our clever little device that's sitting up on the top of Sydney Nano Hub at the university. And this device uses as its coldness, the coldness from deep space. And that's really clever because it means that we can condense the water in the air without the use of electrical energy. And we can do it 24 hours a day, even in really bright sunlight. And this sort of water could be used to support wildlife in droughts, or perhaps to grow grapes or grow other crops or look after animals. And in fact, I've, we've also been looking at whether it could be used in a city like Sydney um, to help support our water resources and provide us with a new source of water. 
We also have another project which is just starting up with the Smart Crete Cooperative Research Centre, led by Professor Marjorie Valix, where we are looking to use waste products such as glass and mine wastes to put into new types of concrete and cement. Because believe it or not, we're actually running out of some of the raw resources like sand and gravel that needs to go into that cement. And so by using these uh, waste materials, we hope that we can produce in conjunction with our industry partners from mining companies, waste recyclers, cement manufacturers, and water utilities such as Sydney Water and Hunter Water to produce new concrete products that will be more environmentally friendly, more sustainable, more durable, and hopefully also cheaper. And that it can be used um, for water networks such as pipes, culverts, gutters, and also pavements. And that's a good point for me to hand over to Ben to talk to you about some of the sensing work. Thanks, Diane. Great to be with you today. So picking up on the theme, I'm going to talk really about sensing the underground. We're all where is all the water going? I'm speaking with two hats. I'm director of City Nana, but I'm also co-director of the New South Wales Smart Sensing uh, Network. So this is an image of um, the water cycle. And of course, um, if we just click through, there are a number of issues that we're going to pick up on in this session. Uh, we already heard about the plain harvesting um, we know about the fish kills, we know about groundwater monitoring. I'm going to focus on advanced pipe sensing, which the Minister alluded to. And of course, with all these uh, issues, there's a massive amount of data which the sensors provide and the data analytics that you'll hear about from my colleague Sally and the statistics will inform us of what's going on and where we can invest. So with that perspective, let me just make sure we all understand what we mean by a smart sensor. So we all have one sitting in front of us right now in our smartphone. It is indeed loaded with fantastic sensors that are connected um, onto the cloud. And we often use machine learning or AI to provide then that control of our environment. So our houses, our cars are loaded with sensors. The New South Wales Smart Sensing Network, next slide please was set up to provide that thought leadership um, across New South Wales. Um, so our vision is to transform the ecosystem, advance prosperity across the state through solutions and opportunities that we create by bringing together academia, industry and government to position New South Wales as a recognised global leader. Um, so we represent um, many of the New South Wales universities, plus our friends in the ACT and ANU and University of Canberra. So of course, smart sensors are really paramount to many of the issues we face today. I was just on a panel discussion right before this session hosted by ATSI on the topic of COVID-19 and I presented work we're doing at Sydney Nano and through the Smart Sensing Network on using sensor fusion to detect signatures of infectious disease, possibly based on wearables. But of course, we also work in agriculture using sensors to detect um, and enhance smart ag, smart cities, Okay, so let me just sort of frame the conversation by two key issues um, already mentioned by the Minister. Massive amounts of water are being lost simply through uh, leaks and breaks in pipes. In fact, it's about 10% of the water um, is lost through uh, leaking pipes. That's equivalent to the amount of water generated by desalination plant. This is a global issue. This is not unique to Sydney. Sydney probably is better than many places around the world 
during the drought, this was a pretty big issue. Um, even when the dams are full, um, let's face it, the catastrophic failure, the damage that is done when these pipes break to residents, to uh, infrastructure, to transport, to industry is severe. So this is really one of the grand challenges. So the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network really brings together uh, those three uh, pillars of innovation, the knowledge demand, which is the water utilities in this case. We bring the universities together across New South Wales, ACT, and we work closely with industry. So the water utilities uh, that have been involved in this work um, are across Australia, but also we connect with global water utilities in the UK in particular. So what's interesting about our work here is that we've taken quite a um, whole of sense, <laughs> whole of pipe perspective, if you like, and we're utilizing sensor fusion, which basically means that we're not just using one sensor to map the underground. We're going to use a suite of different sensors that will look for different features or attributes of the underground. So uh, on the one hand, we're working with the University of ANU and Canberra on quantum sensing that measures the gravity field above the ground on the surface that reveals the density of the soil, which is a signature of a leaking pipe. We're working with the University of Newcastle on drones that measure from above using LIDAR and hyperspectral imaging uh, water concentration at the surface, um, and that reveals whether the pipe is leaked, whether the pipe's corroding. We're working with the University of New South Wales on distributed <coughs> acoustic sensors or hydrophones that are embedded on optical fibers. So these are sensors that are actually placed in the pipe, that are dragged along the pipe, and we listen literally to the sound of the signature of a leaking pipe. And then we work with UTS on utilizing acoustic sensors that are attached to the infrastructure above the ground. And uh, here, again, we listen to uh, leaking pipes. And of course, we use a massive amount of data analytics, sensor fusion, data fusion, to look for the signatures of those um, cracking pipes. So there are a number of really uh, key areas um, where smart sensors are going to enable smart decisions. The minister already alluded to uh, the flood plain harvesting. How can sensors better inform hydrological modelling? I think we're going to hear a little bit from Sally. Um, I alluded to the uh, fish kills. How do we measure water quality in a scalable and durable manner? Groundwater monitoring. How do we completely understand the surface ground water interaction? What can advanced sensors offer? And of course, there's overarching data analytics uh, agenda. How do we share data? It's a big issue more effectively and efficiently across different agencies. Uh, how do we use real-time data, data analytics to improve the response times? So right now, there are a couple of key issues and conversations that we're involved in with key stakeholders uh, where we are bringing together universities across Australia with water utilities and other government agencies. The Murray-Darling Water uh, issue is a big one, and there right now is an open for tender um, through the Australian government, uh, an opportunity to bring smart sensors and data analytics to address this really key national issue. And of course, the Australian uh, Water and Pipe Network Test Facility, which is an initiative of the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network, is leading to establish a test facility in Western Sydney that would be... Um, really allow Australia to be a world leader in water research and innovation. 
uh, to be integrated with the Western Sydney City build and to allow a consortium approach across the universities, the water utilities and the government agencies to address some of the really key issues around portable water, sewer, stormwater and water cycling and treatment. And I think with that, I thank you and I look forward to the conversation. Over to Sally. Uh, yeah, well, uh, it's a it's a joy to be here today and talking uh, in such illustrious company. Um, and I'm going to be talking today about what we're doing in mathematics and statistics in order to try and understand uh, how data analytics can help us in the management of our natural resources. I'm so DARE, which stands for Data Analytics for Resources and Environment. We are a data analytics centre with a difference, which is which is where we are uh, focus on uncertainty. So, how can we use data to really understand uncertainty because the million dollar question facing people like Minister Pavey is how do you um, make decisions for the future in the face of such uncertainty? Uh, how do you make the best possible evidence-based decisions that are robust to the amount of uncertainty that we see in our climate? And you don't have to look far in our climate to just realise back in the past how, how uncertain things are. We hit in October of last year, we were in the middle of one of our worst, our worst droughts. That was followed by bushfires um, that were some of the worst we've seen, Follow, which had a devastating impact not only on the vegetation but also on our uh, fauna. And shortly after that, we had uh, one of the... Uh, uh, um, well, a welcome flood, but it was a it was it was a flood of some substance. Um, and you heard Minister Pavey say that we went from forty percent to eighty two percent in the Warragamba Dam. So, in that context, we don't really have to think too hard just to appreciate what a difficult decision it is to model the uncertainty uh, around. Uh, our water supply and how key that is for managing how we go forward into the future. So um, in, in doing this at the Data Analytics Centre, what we've done is we've got a whole bunch of data scientists together. There are people who are mathematicians, computer scientists, statisticians, and I've listed them on the left side there, together with a whole bunch of people who are really great scientists in their particular domain. Uh, Lucy Willem and, and Fiona, for example, working in water, Glenda Aaron and Jodie Webster in biodiversity, and the Mark Lindsay, Mark Jessel and uh, Tristan in the in the more landscapes or the, the minerals. Now, um, key in all of this is we do use a lot of data. We use the data that's provided by Ben's um, group. Uh, we also inform Ben's group about where we are most uncertain about uh, what's actually happening so that they can um, strategically place their sensors. I suppose what I do want to say, though, is that the conventional or superficial use of big data is often really dangerously misleading. So um, because it underestimates uncertainty, you get predictions and predictions are all well and good and they're certainly important. But without understanding the uncertainty around those predictions, you will not get optimal decisions made. So the, the centre is a $12 million enterprise um, and we look at a whole bunch of things together because we argue that you can't just look at water in the, without looking at other aspects like biodiversity or minerals. or uh, and, and so we look at all three together uh, and we have three um, themes as well for data science, which is, you know, exploring data, building models and making decisions. And to, to do this well, we've got some New South Wales government um, 
partners, Department of Planning and Industry, the Natural Resources Commission, the Data Analytics Centre of New South Wales. We have other um, New South Wales government um, entities such as Water New South Wales, and you've heard Ben talk about the NSSN, which is the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network. We've got um, other state and federal government agencies, Geoscience Australia, Bureau of Meteorology, the Biodiversity Institute of Western Australia. Uh, and our, we're very grateful for our funders who are both from uh, the philanthropic world, the Mindaroo Foundation has made a very generous donation to us, but also companies, uh, Newcrest, IAG, McKinsey's, these are companies who are really interested in the long-term future of Australia's environment and who have very generously sponsored us and are keen to carry out their business, but in a way that ensures the future for Australia. Uh, just to give you an idea of some of the work that we've been um, looking at, I've got here, you'll see something moving across your screen. That's water vapour going on a daily basis. This was a project where we had about 300 million data points. We had um, uh, daily measurements um, of rainfall across the entire Australian continent. And we wanted to see, you know, what was the impact of various um, indicators, climate indicators on that rainfall. We all know, uh, we've all heard about ENSA, which is the El Nino Southern Oscillation Index on the East Coast. We know that that's a contributor to uh, what happens to rainfall in Australia. We know the Indian Ocean Dipole is something on our West Coast. The Southern Annual Module Index is from the Southern Ocean. And we, what we really wanted to understand was what parts, under what conditions do those things give us indications about what's going to happen to daily rainfall in Australia. And the real focus is, of course, on daily rainfall because it's very different to have 100 mils in one day rather than 100 mils over 30 days. So, so we really wanted to understand this, and that was a very... Um, that was a good project and that, that paper's appeared in the Annals of Applied Statistics. We do a lot of other projects and these are just some of them that I've listed up here. Uh, a, a lot of them are around uh, understanding the uncertainty in our natural system and you can see there that um, one of them at least um, under the water, where has the water gone, that's joint, that's what um, Ben was talking about. Uh, that's probabilistic models for the water balance dynamics. There we're trying to really understand where the groundwater has gone and working very closely with our colleagues in sensing to say, well, we actually need a sensor placed here because we're really unsure of what lies underneath. And so it's together using mathematics with these sensors that can actually give us bigger insights. Uh, and just finish off to say that it is in this understanding of uncertainty that we have the best hope in planning for a, a future. Uh, the Murray-Darling Basin has got a tender out, um, and you heard about that from Ben as well, and we're uh, trying to do what we can in that regard in order to understand what's happening to the water storage in the Murray-Darling Basin. We've done some work on that in the past. You'll see a graph on the bottom left. The, the red line um, is the actual water storage going from 1970 up to the present. The blue is what we're sort of predicting. What you can see from that is that it's 
it's highly, highly variable. But when we built a, a, a probabilistic model, we can actually get predictions and probability distributions over those predictions. Um, and, and using things like the Southern Oscillation Index as, as an indicator of what rainfall is going to be, we can, you know, six months in advance, uh, explain 75% of the variability in the um, storage in the, in the Murray-Darling Basin. So I'm very hopeful that together mathematics and science can work hand in hand to actually lead to better insights and outcomes for um, uh, the Murray-Darling Basin and for the water in general across New South Wales. Thanks very much. Okay, now I have the privilege of giving the last presentation today before we turn to discussion. We'll make the case for socio-environmental modeling, starting with my personal experience or working experience. The kind of blinking model on the screen is how I started my work with, the, with water 20 years ago. And it was building water supply network models on a computer. Such digital network models simplify the reality and allow us to simulate water flows water pressure distribution and contaminant contagion across the network. Similar digital models, only a bit better looking, are still used in practice to design, restructure and maintain actual physical water supply networks. After this experience, next slide please, I've later become involved in the assessment of water systems in several countries of Southeast Asia. Water systems in these cities that we evaluated often failed to provide water to a large proportion of its citizens. The main problem wasn't hydraulics, or necessarily a lot lack of water resources, but something more complex. For example, in Manila, where these pictures are from, the local water provider could not build direct water connections to their customers in vast informal settlements around the city, because these settlements were technically illegal. The inhabitants of these communities obtained water through so-called community-based water systems. The community received water from the provider in bulk and took care of the distribution by themselves through little pipes like, like these in the photos. That seemed like a great and empowering solution, but a closer examination found that how much water, what quality, and for how much money each community member could get depended on their social position in their community. Something like social position in a community sounds too vague to rigorously consider for water supply management or policy purposes, but it can actually be measured. Using the network paradigm again, only this time we are not speaking about water networks, but social networks. The diagrams on the screen show examples of two actual measured social networks in two different communities in Indonesia. The links in the diagram represent relationships between the community members who are depicted by the small circles. Depending on how water systems are designed, where you are in these types of community social networks, in the center or on the edge, can determine how much water you can get. With this knowledge, specific practical recommendations for more equitable and sustainable water provision could be made. In general, we can run infrastructure projects better if we understand better the structure of the affected communities and the stakeholder networks that surround them. Subsequent studies have shown that social networks matter for other things too, because people influence each other and learn from each other in networks. For example, our current research suggests that communities that are highly centralized around a single individual, like the star diagram on the right, are less likely to adopt progressive technologies and be more likely to stay stuck with old ways of doing things. Networks matter at larger scales too. For example, in our recent joint research led by a colleague in Sweden, Orion Bodin, 
We explain the need for understanding networks of ecological and social interdependencies jointly for more sustainable environmental governance. Such network conceptualizations can help us make visible and quantify what would normally be put into too complex to do something about category. This approach can help us also to uncover any governance gaps that need to be bridged. For example, if on the green ecological layer, there is an ecological interdependency between a river in one jurisdiction and a water body in another jurisdiction, and if on the red social layer, the corresponding agencies that look after these respective resources are not linked by communication and collaboration relationships, we're probably, probably going to have a problem. I would argue that this socio-ecological misalignment is a cause of many troubles that we are dealing with now, because water and our ecosystems are not compartmentalized in the way that our agencies and our disciplines that look after them often are. I hope these examples illustrate the importance of considering ecological and social systems jointly for better management of important resources, such as water, and how network analysis can help make sense of such complex interdependencies. I'll finish my presentation here and move to the discussion. I will go straight into the participants' questions. And one of them is actually quite close to what I wanted to ask anyway. It's about the future. So we've heard about what technologies are being developed now, what is being used now, but thinking about 2030, which is the date that we put into the description of the event, what do you think? What will be the technologies? What will be the strategies that we'll, we will need to, in 2030, to deal with the, the situation that we're heading towards. We have climate change mentioned by the minister. We have changing demographics, changing cities, regional areas. And we wrote that we're running out of water and all of that. But so what, what can we do? What will we need to do 10 years from now? So I'll start on that one. I think that we need to start to see water as a whole resource because it's not just the water. You know, if we desalinate things, there's a lot of other components in that salt water that we could actually be using in our communities. And certainly we need to be looking at not just recycling the water one or two times, but also taking other products out. So, for example, we already know that if we treated sewage water, we could recover a lot of um, agricultural fertiliser products and things like that. So really starting to think of water as that much more holistic resource and reusing it over and over again and, and using not just the water itself, which of course is really vital, but also using all the other components that are in it as well. So, so water is part of our much larger ecosystem and what we do to um, ensure that we have enough water, whether it's to have a desal plant, which has knock-on effects for other things, whether it's to use groundwater uh, in order to ensure supply also has other effects like raising the salt table. Um, so all of these things have to be considered as part of a whole and, and added over to that complexity is the complexity that I believe that we simply do not really yet understand just how extreme our climate can be. We've only started taking reliable measurements on this for you know 200 years um, my concern is that it's it could well be going into the future much more extreme than what we're seeing now and how do you plan for those um, increasing extreme events is is non-trivial um, and 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 something that we you know we need to understand and i think the first way to 
best understand that is is by uh, working with scientists who do know these things, but also by getting data from sensors and various bits and pieces in order for us to get an actual handle on how variable these things really are. Just to pick up on Sally's point, it's all about the data and data need sensors. Um, I've been to the command centre at Sydney Water in Parramatta. It's a fascinating room where they manage the Sydney Water network and they have a big dashboard where you kind of expect to see the Sydney map of all the pipes and it's a bit like a Google Maps. You kind of expect it to be interactive and that there are sensors everywhere and they can use AI. And I asked the guy, I said, how do you find out if there's a pipe leak? He said, we get a phone call. I said, do you use social media? He said, yeah, we monitor the Twitter channels, you know, and every once in a while someone tags us and we call them. And that's best practice. They're kind of actually one of the leading water utility companies in the world. So they really haven't brought the leading edge innovation, the AI, the smart sensors to bear on that problem. And I think, you know, there's so much progress. I mean, we can bring that 10% loss down to 4%. Um, that's only the beginning. Thank you, Ben. If I can just follow up uh, with a question to Sully. So you mentioned that there's a lot of superficial use of big data that can cause yeah. more, more, more damage than good. That, that quite intrigued me. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I suppose that there's, I suppose most people here have heard all about big data. Um, what I actually, um, but if we're just using that data with really our, without understanding, feeding them into algorithms that we don't understand, uh, that don't actually measure uncertainty, then we're not getting uh, the, the, the big picture. So, so the big question, there is no amount of data that is going to reduce the variability in our climate. So it's not really a question of using data to, uh, you know, be able to predict exactly what's going to happen. We're never going to do that. What we, what we have to do is use data in a smart way to understand uncertainty and to model uncertainty because it's about risk management going forward. And, that, and, and so we need to collect the right data. It's not just a question of having lots of data. So you, we need to be in conversation with people to say we need if I want to make this decision about whether to build this desal plant or whether to increase the dam at Warragamba or uh, any other decision that we may have about water in the future, that has got to be taken into the context of what, what sort of risks does that pose, um, how variable is it going forward, and that often cannot be answered with the data we currently have. So it's not just a question of lots of data, but we need the right data, and that's where you need to work with people like been in sensing and say, well, actually, this is what this is the data we need. How can you put a device there that will actually sense that? So, in order for it to feed back, we have a lot of data, but most of it is pretty useless. And so, we have only a few minutes left. Uh, I would like to give an opportunity to every panel member if they have some final closing message. What, what they think is is the, the, the key point in their from their own uh, ex disciplinary viewpoint or from their own expertise. Uh, in terms of what they're going forward. I can give my take home message is sensors and data. I think that there are off the shelf sensors that already add value and there's a lot of innovation happening in sensors. Think about quantum sensors, think about some of the nanotechnology that's gonna transform that whole space. Okay, well I, my take home would be that, um, you know, that every Australian is a stakeholder in the water business. Um, and that we need actually people coming together from different 
backgrounds, different disciplines to work collectively on doing this. Um, so scientists, um, the community trying to understand better uh, what what our needs are for the future and, and, and figuring out, trying to drought-proof Australia basically by trying to understand just how variable it is and how we can take measures to mitigate against being in a position where we, as we almost did last year, ran out of water. I'd add to that and saying let's stop treating water as a once-off use resource and let's start getting together and and getting and working on all our great ideas to try and um, think how we can better treat and reuse um, and produce new water sources like that um, technology that I showed you about getting water direct from the air without having to wait for it to rain. I think that's that's a wonderful concluding concluding message. Yeah. It sounds to me like 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 a sci-fi water from the air and being being cooled by coldness from the space. It, it's, it's amazing. And I was hoping that on this panel, we will not just complain about how the environment is, is all going to hell and, and how many problems and challenges we have, but that we can actually illustrate what are some potential pieces of the puzzles that can work as, as practical solutions. And while we're very aware that, that uh, our expertise is uh, skewed towards just one side or just one, one, one part of the the overall solution. I think that uh, uh, th there is a lot of knowledge here that, that, that could be practically applied and provide evidence for uh, any, any future solutions. So with that, I would like to thank uh, all, of the, all of the participants. I would like to thank uh, all of the panel members. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.